welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I cannot believe it. It is already, we're at the end. We're at the end of season three, Mike. I know, it's been a long journey. I, I didn't mean that to sound negative when I said like a long <laughs> journey. You know, it's, it's been a good journey. I learned a ridiculous amount, which is really the only reason I did this was to learn. Wow, you know? that's very um, complimentary. I hope so. I mean, it. yeah. <laughs> you wanted to learn. I thought you did this because you wanted to spend like extra quality time with me. Yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. You know, when people Megan. hesitate yeah. before they answer, it kind of gives it away <laughs> that it's not like legit no. answer. Okay. <laughs> and, well, and and learn, yes. Well, I'm excited to learn even more today. I mean, even though this is our last episode, we're not done because we're covering one of my all-time favorite topics. Do you know what it is? Well, uh, all-time favorite topics. Um, roots? <laughs> Good. You read the outline. I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of you paying attention and focusing. Go I was on. thinking about it. You know, we, we compare prairies to uh, the ocean or to the sea. Where is this going? This is an analogy, maybe. Okay, I'm ready. Um, and so, you know, what's going on in the ocean is under the surface for the, oh, for the most now part. I'm with okay. I wasn't. You know, the ocean is all about the life. The life is, you know, except for birds and stuff um, on the surface. Birds mostly, and stuff. <laughs> mostly it's under the ocean, <laughs> under the surface. Hashtag Mike's a scientist. Birds and stuff. <laughs> and so, thank you. Um, the prairie is very similar in some respects, not to the same extent perhaps, but much of what's going on in the prairie is under the surface, just like the ocean. Okay, Thank I'll you. buy that. Okay. I'll buy that. Thank you. And it's also really cool, and I think there's so much that we still don't know. So we're going to cover a lot of things that we do know today, and I'm very excited because there's no person that I would rather get back to our roots with than our very special guest that we have with us today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, uh, Megan, this is Justin Meissen. I am the research and restoration uh, research and restoration coordinator at the Tallgrass Prairie Center uh, here in the uh, University of Northern Iowa. And uh, looking forward to talking about some uh, prairies with you guys today. I'm excited, too. And we probably should mention that while we delve into this radical world of roots, I had to say it. I couldn't help myself. Oh, nice alliteration. Radical there. world yeah. of roots. Yeah. I know if I only had a some different for the W, like radical ride of I don't know. <laughs> radical world of roots. I'm sticking with it. Sounds good. Um, as we delve into this, we kind of made Justin stretch his learning and knowledge too, because he is not the person who's in charge of the roots project at the Tallgrass Center. But we like him so much, and we know that he's super fabulous and smart. And so we wanted to expand his horizons. See what I did there? Soil horizons, horizons. Oh. <laughs> as well as we get. Yeah, most, yeah, for sure. Most of my work is in um, like seed mix design and um, population biology of native plants. So this is a it's a very cool uh, opportunity to to talk about something new and something very cool. I know. I am really excited. So one, okay, I'm going to start with a little story. I don't even remember when this was, but for one of my birthdays, I went to the Field Museum in Chicago. Yes, huge nerd. I We just get that out there right now. I'm not as big a nerd as Mike because he's sitting here wearing a shirt that has different kinds of moss on it. So They're beautiful. They yeah. are beautiful, but I just want you to know that when he took his sweater off, I was like, nice moth shirt. 
don't, don't bash the shirts. I have an awesome prairie plant shirt that I wear all the time. It's a yeah, I'm good shirt with all the prairie plants. Hey, a coworker and and myself, we have a whole list of ideas for shirts, like super nerd shirts that we want to create that are all related to our conservation work. So, really, we kid because we care. So anyway, okay, I went to the field museum. And the reason why I went is because they were doing this whole um, featured exhibit on roots and prairies. And they had made in one of their exhibit areas as if you were a microscopic organism going through the roots. So it was like a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids moment where you're walking through the Field Museum and they had these huge towering roots that are way, way bigger than I am. And then you get to be like a little bug going through and you get to learn about all the different things that roots are doing. I want to do that. It was awesome. Yeah. Like it really stuck in my mind. And so I, I'm hopeful that with this podcast that we can sort of transport you to that type of experience. How old were you? Uh, that's not important. When was this? I was an adult. Oh, I thought maybe that led you down this career path to where you are today. No, I think I was like 30 or something. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, whoa, a lot. No judgment. I want to do it now. Okay. Yeah. It sounded a little judgy, but you know. Hey, Megan and Mike here with a quick fact check update. So I actually looked this up and you can still go see this exhibit. It's still at the Field Museum. It's called the Underground Adventure, and you get to shrink to one one hundredth of your size and examine soil science from a new perspective. It is incredible, and I loved it when I went, so you can actually still go. And while you're there, you might also want to check out the fantastic bug encounters, which they have going on right now, too. Mike, want to go? Yeah, definitely. I said I wanted to go during the episode, and I meant it. I know it redirected your career. Maybe it'll redirect mine to become, you know, uh, like a museum person uh, developing these exhibits. Right? (laughs) I love it. Mike and I have a road trip to get to. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Megan and Mike, out. Okay, we're going to jump in because we have a lot to cover, especially since prairie roots go down 14 feet or more. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So (laughs) there's a lot to unpack here. And they do so many things. Flood control, soil health, water infiltration, water storage, trapping sediment and nutrients. Oh my gosh, we've got a lot. We've got a lot that we're going to... got a lot to talk about. It's true. So before we get started, as always, I know that you said your title of what you do, but tell us a little bit more about the work that you do at the Tallgrass Center. Yeah, so as the uh, Research and Restoration Program Manager, a lot of what I do is... um, Sort of designing uh, experiments or studies or demonstration sites to uh, sort of illustrate all these concepts in, in prairie restoration research that um, that we think that other people sort of need to to be able to understand when they're doing that work on their own. So some of the stuff that we work on is seed mix design. You know, one of the current projects we're looking at is you know grass to forb ratios and how those um, sort of functional groups are important in making seed mixes. Um, you know, some of the other things are uh, looking at uh, demonstrating uh, different kinds of planting techniques like broadcast versus drill. Um, all these are the things that uh, people that are going to be doing stuff out in the field um, can come and look at, you know, something side by side that they might have questions about. 
I like it. And I should mention right now that your website, the Tallgrass Prairie Center, has an amazing number of resources that I use all the time related to restoration. So you've got this nice chart based off of your research for how many different kinds of species you should put in each functional group, like warm season grass, cool season grass, legume forb, non-legume forb, all of that, and kind of suggested numbers of species, and then also um, suggested rates, like overall, like base minimum seed mix rates in order to be successful. So there's there's that, you've got the seed harvest chart, like when to harvest seed. There's so many things. I love your guys' website. Yes, lots of resources. Totally encourage everyone to go play around and see what they can learn. All right, so getting on to roots. This topic came up because last season, Jess asked me a question where she was like, well, how long does it take for prairie roots to grow? And I just kind of blinked at her and I was like, why are you asking me this question? Because <laughs> I was not prepared to answer it. And I was like, I don't actually know how long it takes. And so I was kind of guessing, I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they grow fairly quickly. I mean, in a one-year prairie after a season, it's difficult to dig them up, but I don't really know the answers to these. So then we just, as good people do, as a good scientist, we just nipped that in the bud and said, you know what? We're going to spend more time researching this, and we will answer that question later when <laughs> we have more information. So, Justin, give us some information about prairie roots. Tell me all about them. Sure. I mean, so we can actually tell we can address that question right off the bat. So it's kind of incredible how fast prairie roots do grow. You know, if you so I'm just going to preface like pretty much most of my information that I'm going to share with you guys today comes from one guy, uh, J.E. Weaver, who is a seminal prairie research scientist from, you know, pretty much the entire early part of the 20th century. So most of the information I'm going to share is from his work where he actually did dig up roots and he did tons of measurements on, you know, how the prairie root systems worked and kind of how they were uh, different from each other. So um, one of the things he did was exactly this, was plant seedlings of prairie plants and watched them grow and dug them up. And so, uh, you know, even just so like a big blue stem plant, even after just three months, um, the roots, if, as long as they're in good soil, can actually reach like three feet deep. You know, that's not quite full size, but three feet is huge compared to what they have on top, which is probably only about nine inches tall. So that actually gives you a really good... Mm, comparison to what's going on under the ground versus what we see on top because most of prairie's biomass is underground. So two-thirds of the prairie biomass is actually beneath our feet. So that's kind of wild to think about. Um, so yeah, so that's just the first year. And then in the second year, they basically get full size. So um, two or three years, they're reaching their maximum size of, or I guess average maximum size of, you know, about five feet deep, five to six feet deep for something like big blue stem. Shallower roots like little blue stem, those only take like two years to get to, to their full size. So, so the answer, we have an answer to that question, and that's um, like max three years. Now, we don't have a good answer with like Forbes, with tap roots. 
or sort of woody systems. Um, it's interesting because, again, uh, Weaver had some pretty interesting um, findings about one of the Laetris species. The, uh, you guys have it up in western Minnesota, Laetris punctata. Um, dotted blazing star for those of you. Dotted, who don't know. dotted blazing star. I'm gonna have to try a little harder with my botany botany <laughs> speak. Um, but yeah, so he was finding that you know the roots of those of those plants were getting you know 15 plus feet deep. But they were he was able to count the rings on some of those um, tap root uh, offshoots, and they were 35 years old. So. Um, so those might be growing a little slower than our grassroots. That's crazy. Like I never, I'm sorry, Mike, I know you're going to say something, but I never thought about counting the rings on a forb root, you know, cause you just like, and I'm ashamed to say that cause I'm a prairie person, but I just think of like counting rings on trees. I didn't even think about counting rings. So on. explain to me how you said 35 years. I be, Yes. 35 years. How does, I figured the roots would decompose. How does how does a forum grow that old? Yeah, so you've you've asked the the question that makes it so hard to do uh, age counting in forbs is that most of the roots are not something that stick around in the soil. Well, most of the roots do stick around, but uh, especially with forbs with fibrous root systems, those roots are so tiny that they are typically decomposing. Um, but you have like a, a thick taproot that stays in the soil. It really, it really is like a tree, you know, it stays alive and its growth points are down, down deep in the soil. So, and that's a whole cool conversation we can have about the differences between grasses and borbs um, in the, uh, underneath our feet because they, they're very different um, sort of strategies as far as um, how they get their resources. I read this paper earlier um, in prep for this and we'll, we'll cover it more later, but they were talking about how like we're always impressed with how deep the roots go, right? Because that's, I mean, we're people. So it's like, wow, look at how the depth of that thing got to. It's breaking records. I think we compare but, it to like pulling vegetables out of the garden, right? And that's what we're yeah, that's you what we're can't used to. like yeah. or rolling up turf, for example. Mm -hmm. Like if you you cannot roll up the prairie, there's just an incredible, like you said, two thirds of the biomass. But one of the things I found interesting when I was reading is that they said that most of the grasses, you know, are really their thick mat of roots are in that upper horizon of soil so they're in the top like 10 or so inches and then the forb strategy is to go right underneath that to draw their water and then shrubs go underneath that so it's like this layering system where these hmm. plants have just figured out how best to compete and persist with each other i thought that was super cool hmm. yeah that's exactly um the case is that the forbs typically scavenge for water deeper and uh, even though we have um, something like switchgrass that's putting down roots that are 10 feet deep, um, 9 to 10 feet deep, it's really not using that depth to bring the water up. So it's all of our grasses focus on sort of a strategy where you have most of your roots up at the top in the top 10 inches or so of, of the soil. And so, um, and that's that's also where all the rhizomes are. That's you know, 
that's where all the action happens. Not all of the action, but most of the action happens up at that uh, top four inches and uh, top 10 inches as well. Explain to me before we move on what a rhizome is and what it does. Because I get this question a lot, and I just want to make yes. sure that like people understand what it, what it yes. is. What is, what is it doing? So rhizomes are actually, so we'll probably throw around some terms that are not technically roots, such as corms and rhizomes. So those are not actually roots. They're stems that basically grow underground. Um, so they are essentially horizontal stems of the plant that are growing underground. So they can send up shoots from the ground to the top of the uh, to the, to the soil surface, and they can also shoot roots down from their growing points from the stems as well, from the rhizomes. So rhizomes are, you know, like I said, stems that are growing underground, and they, they form a really, really crazy dense mat in the prairie. Um, and it's not necessarily, sometimes it's from species that we don't think of as, you know, sod-forming or rhizomatous plants, like big blue stem actually has tons of rhizomes or at least the capacity to uh, shoot out tons of rhizomes and um, actually Weaver looked at kind of the um, a square foot of prairie soil and he found that around 50 feet of rhizomes were produced per square foot by big blue stem for example and if you think that's a lot uh, we can talk about cord, prairie cord grass, which is kind of the king of rhizomes. So, um, or the, exact, queen. the queen of rhizomes, the king of rhizomes, the royal family of rhizomes, because um, it's true, right? They're they're not they're not male or female. They're they're all the same. They've got them both. Um, so um, so they have a really significant rhizosphere around the. Uh, uh, the prairie core grass, and so they're they're growing deeper than uh, big blue stem. They can go closer to ten inches deep. They can use up that entire range, and then they actually have eighty uh, average of 80, 80 feet of rhizomes per square foot. So, if you can imagine just like coiling up a rope that's eighty foot eighty feet long and dropping it at your feet, that's essentially what's happening here. What's it's, Justin, what's the benefit of a rhizome compared to just a stem above ground? What so in the prairie, yeah, that's a great question. So in the prairie, you know, if you think about all of the challenges associated with living above ground in the prairie, um, you've got potential for grazing, you know, at least the way it's, it developed over evolutionary time. Um, you know, you would have bison grazing off, you know, your stems, and so that, you know, you couldn't necessarily rely on uh, stems above ground to be um, resilient that way. And, of course, we have fire, too. So um, those are both disturbances that make it not a good strategy to to devote most of your energy to growing above ground. So rhizomes are one way to, you know, do most of the cool stuff that stems do uh, below ground where they're safe. So um, that's kind of the story that you'll find a lot of these um, prairie plants having is that they've, they've moved the, the um, sort of um, vulnerable points under the ground so that you can avoid 
a lot of the challenges above ground. Okay, well put. Let's move on, Justin. Um, Megan kind of, yeah, she gave a spoiler alert earlier. Started <laughs> talking about some of the benefits. Let's dig into some of those benefits more, if you would, of, of what prairie roots do for us and for the ecosystem. Yeah, so I would say that to kind of um, start thinking about the benefits of prairie roots, it's important to think about how they change the soil. So um, a remnant prairie soil is going to be very crumbly and granular, and it's going to be different from sort of uh, tilled soil that will sometimes be blocky and dusty. Mm. Um, so a lot of us have experiences with those soils, right? Kind of go into a field or an urban area and pick up the soil. It's kind of it's hard to break apart. Um, but if you next time you're out in a remnant prairie, if you can find a spot where badger maybe have, has dug a hole or some other fresh uh, fresh prairie digging, um, take a try to find some of the black topsoil and just feel how crumbly that is. It should feel like cookie cookie crumbs. Hmm. Um, and so that that crumbly granular texture is important um, because it's. Um, basically providing a lot of space in the ground. So um, there's tons of, so basically that was created by prairie roots, either you know, by punching millions of holes through the roots, uh, the macropores um, in the soil. Um, you know, some of the roots would die, you know, and that would leave space. Um, and so if you think about it, it's kind of wild, but um, about half of that prey soil is actually open pore space, not quite half. But And so think about that, like that's a sponge, right? So essentially these prairies are creating a sponge under the earth. And so um, there's a lot of benefits to something like that. So. Flood control is going to be one of those key uh, components. So, like I said, this, that pore space um, helps hold a lot of water. And then the stems above ground are sort of um, creating a road down for the water coming from the, the sky and the ground down to those, those holes. And so rather than the water moving sort of as a sheet horizontally, it's, it's going it's getting directed down downward into that um, that prairie earth where it can be stored and move a lot more slowly into our streams, so we don't have as much flashy um, flooding and stuff like that. Um, the cookie, the cookie, cookie crumbs analogy. I totally understand that analogy. That was good. Thank you. And the sponge analogy yes. with the pore space. These are great analogies, and I like the cookie one too because. Prairie soil, remnant prairie soil, because it's functioning so well and it's so healthy, if you will, it has this really spicy smell. If you guys have ever smelled prairie soil, like it just smells better than other soil. And to me, that's the function that's going on there because it's high functioning. Things are working as they should. There's billions of microorganisms that you can't even see that are working in there. So it's just, it has a different smell. It has a good smell. Smells like rich, good earth. I like it. Anyway, keep keep telling us about it. It does. It smells awesome. Um, I just want to. So one of the cool things that Weaver also showed was he actually, he looked at. Um, and this is this is we're gonna move above ground really quick. I'm just gonna give you a cool little factoid that a lot of this the 
the um, water that can be stored by the prairies is also above ground mm. based on the surface area of all of the grasses and the forbs. So there's a ton of water, and I'm and you know this. If you've ever walked through prairie yeah. Yeah. in the morning, that you are basically taking a bath. May, as, may have well have taken a bath. So yeah. so that's another cool little you know, I think that's pretty cool. So some water gets stored above ground as well as below ground. So because all the uh, leaves are trapping it as well as droplets <laughs> on there, the stems yes. and everything else. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So Justin, you're getting at some of why it's a challenge sometimes to restore a prairie though too, right? Because that's of this restructuring of of the soil once once it's been cultivated, it's basically you you really change the structure of the soil. Yes, yes, and so um, so there's a lot of um, or there's a there's a definitely a literature out there that's sort of looking at that um, the the ability for restored prairie to provide similar kinds of below ground um, ecosystem services as a remnant prairie. Um, what we're finding is pretty much that it is really hard to, and I don't know that they're, except for a few circumstances, ever able to match the ability of a remnant prairie to provide stuff like soil organic carbon um, and, and other things like that. Um, but prairie rest, restorations make a huge difference getting close to that. You know, they get often some markles about 60% in a lot of those areas of, of returning the, the, um, those uh, ecosystem services below ground to. Sure. I mean, even, even if they're not as good as remnant prairie, they're better than some, they're better than a parking lot, right? Absolutely. They're much, but much we're better. We're getting better too. I mean, I think, as we continue to learn more and understand more, the goal, right, is always that we could get closer and closer to that remnant prairie state. Whether or not we get there is in some ways irrelevant because it's part of this journey to try to get there. Sure. And the better we do with more diversity and all of these things that I'm trying to push us towards with our seed mixes and stuff, hopefully the closer we can get. But like you mentioned, structure is the hardest thing I feel like to achieve in a reconstruction. We often have not just the same heights above ground, but I would imagine very similar heights below ground, and we don't get that nice differentiation of structure like we do in a remnant prairie. It's still one of my big. Oh, yes. A yes, Megan, I would I would love. Let's talk about that because the diversity of plants below ground is obviously directly related to the plants above ground. So it does matter what we're planting as far as a diverse prairie mix if we're doing a prairie construction. Um, so there's, a, so we've already sort of classified, was able to classify prairie roots into three categories. So you have your shallow rooted plants, which are about two feet deep. Um, so that was, that was only like 14% of the prairie plants out there. And that's, they're, they're all grasses. So like June grass was an example of that. Um, then there was an intermediate group, which were growing at about two to five feet. And that was 20% of the prairie plants. So that was stuff like little blue stem, prairie drop seed, uh, porcupine grass. And then most of the plants were deep rooted. So 65% of prairie plants are uh, more than five feet deep. And so that's our, you know, our Indian grass and big blue stem, but our forbs as well. So 
Uh, we have some massively deep roots out there as far as Forbes go, like Prairie Rose, um, it's 20 feet deep. Um, compass plant, 14 feet. Lead plant is 16 feet deep. And, um, you know, those those all have sort of, not, those are all tap roots, but there's sort of a, uh, rich types of tap roots as well. So you have your typical kind of thick root that goes straight down deep into the soil without much going on except at the base of the root. Um, and that's stuff that we were talking about, lead plant, um, uh, or sorry, not lead plant, lead plant's a little different. Um, the classic tap roots are more like the, the compass plants and the roses. Um, but lead plant's actually an interesting one because it has a um, sort of a branching taproot, sort of a spreading taproot, and it was actually called prairie shoestring for a long time while, was, mm. while the prairies were being converted to agriculture. Um, so they were, um, so they had uh, sort of these sharp snapping sounds that as, as the prairies were being tilled uh, back in the day, that sounded like people were just like uh, breaking sh uh, shoestrings. And so they would, so it actually, has a common name related to its uh, destruction, so oh, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Huh. Um, so yeah, so so that's definitely a, a unique kind of uh, growth form of of some of our prairie forbs, and then of course we've talked about rhizomes, which um, you know are creating a pretty important. Um, sort of a syndrome of, of root, which is like a rhizome and a fibrous root system. So a lot of our asters are like that and they still get pretty deep too, you know. Um, one thing which is interesting to me is, um, you guys know pussy toes, right? Little, um, yeah, antenaria for, for those of us in the botany world. But um, <laughs> those are, you know, those are like at most reaching like three to four inches tall, but they have roots that are four feet deep. So wow. just think oh about gosh. that. It's, it's really crazy. It is uh, crazy. Yeah. So, so all of these roots and everything, uh, tell me, you mentioned carbon sequestration earlier just a little bit, but we, I always get this question from folks that are like, oh, well, forests are such, they do such a better job at carbon sequestration. And I'm like, well, we're not really competing. We need lots of different types of habitat, but prairies play a vital role in this too. So talk to us a little bit about the benefits that they provide for carbon storage. Yeah, so um, certainly the prairie remnant soils are massive stores of, of carbon. Um, you know, thousands of years of biomass production, decomposition, um, you know, those represent something particularly unique. And so, um, you know, converting those prey remnants is a huge source of, of carbon release. And so that's kind of our first strategy here if we're talking about, you know, managing carbon is keeping prey remnants healthy. Um, but as, as far as a remnant or a restoration goes, um, they, you know, it's really the key is to compare it to what the other um, land use was beforehand. So we're talking about a heavily tilled um, field that was a, a source of carbon mm -hmm. um, that was depleting the carbon in the soil. Now we're talking about a system that is 
you know, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and putting it into not only biomass underground and above ground, but also building up soil organic carbon, which was um, which has been the large part um, created from the microbial activity generated by having perennial roots in the ground. So, um, and so that is uh, typically something that is challenging to totally restore, but in general, um, prairie restorations are good examples of carbon sinks, at least for, you know, their um, first first uh, stages of, of, the, of the restoration. And, um, you know, as you get old restorations, the um, ability to store as much carbon uh, sort of peters out a little bit, but... Um, for sure, they're they're still not a carbon source. You know, mature restorations are sort of carbon neutral, or depending on how much you burn, a little bit of a carbon sink. So, gotcha, Justin. You you mentioned the mi microbial activity associated with the roots. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, that's something I'm interested in, especially I think is that ecosystem underground as a whole and how the roots help support that entire ecosystem. Right. So. Um, it's you know it's kind of similar to how we think about above ground ecosystems um you know the the ultimate source of energy is coming from you know carbon in the atmosphere and sun and the, the prairie plants are converting that energy into um you know roots that go below ground and so now there's a new source of of carbon and um, and that is, you know, once those are decomposed, you know, once those die, there's opportunities for bacteria and fungi to decompose those roots. Um, and so there's tons and tons of different kinds of bacteria, tons and tons of different fungi. Um, there's really important um, sort of uh, mutualisms that happen with hmm. the prairie roots. Um, so fungi in particular, uh, there's fungi called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and they yeah. colonize, they colonize our, our roots. No, it's our a great roots. name. <laughs> arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Call them AMF usually. <laughs> um, but they are um, very important uh, symbiotic uh, partners with prey plants and they hmm. help to do a lot of things um, uh, and some 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 of them help uh, scavenge for um, uh, minerals and in in exchange for the carbon from the uh, starches from the plant so hmm. the fungi uses the carbon for, from the prey plant and then the fungi can, um, and then the prey plant uses the minerals or uh, other benefits that the fungi is, you know. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So other other important aspects of those fungi fungal associations are, um, you know, there's a, there's thoughts of those fungi that have colonized the prey roots as providing some degree of. Um, uh, pathogen resistant. So if you've already got a colony of beneficial fungi in your roots, then it's less likely that you'll get, um, you know, pathogens in there as well. So hmm. it's, and that's, that's important in prey restoration too. And so there's um, a lot of cool research looking at how do we um, cultivate and plant the right 
microbes and the fungi in particular um, with our seed mix. And that's um, pretty cool research uh, that's um, happening right now that I think is an important direction that prairie restoration should probably take. I'm super interested in it. I have all of these theories about lead plant, which we talked about earlier, about how we often see a delay in when it shows up, especially if we put it in in seeds. And so there can be plantings where we've planted it and we don't see it for like 15 years or 12 years later, and all of a sudden we have lead plant. And so I have this firm belief that there's a connection that needs to be forged in the soil that doesn't happen until that you don't see lead plant until that's built. And so this is my theory. I don't know if it's true, but there's just so many things going on in that soil ecosystem that I have this belief that that is some, for some reason, that's driving why we're not seeing lead plant as soon as we might hope to see it. There's also prairie succession too. So, I mean, there's some other things going on, but I'm yeah, abs absolutely. Yes, that is um, exactly some of the hypotheses out there that have support uh, behind them, which is that if you inoculate um, later successional prairie plants, more conservative species with some key um, fungi, um, that they'll actually be a lot more robust and they'll grow faster. Um, so you would expect to see them uh, earlier. And so that's, which is why I think it's very promising research. Yeah. Well, on building healthy soils and prairie soils, it didn't just happen overnight. It took thousands and thousands and millions of years. And so this is going to bring us to our fun fact section. I have one that I'm going to start with. And then we'll kind of round robin here with our different fun facts. So my fun fact that I want to start with about roots is that there are more microbes in one teaspoon of soil than there are on Earth, people on Earth, than there are people on Earth. So I gotta say it right or else it's not as impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it again. Okay. There are more microbes in one teaspoon of soil than there are people. So more on than Earth. seven billion. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that incredible? My NRCS friends gave me that fun fact and I was like, that is terrifying and also fascinating. <laughs> like there's so much to learn. Mike, do you wanna give a, a fun fact? I do, I don't know, know many. Uh, oh yes, I do know this one, okay. <laughs> Prairies have the ability to absorb an X inch rainfall. And they, so, what is X? Oh, this is a math problem that we have to do. You want me and Justin to guess? Well, otherwise, if I just said it, what fun would that be? Well, I mean, that's a fun fact. So you're just supposed to say it okay. like you know. It's eight inches. Eight inches of rain. I know you guys knew that, but um, to me, so that that is what Justin was saying earlier about it being a sponge. This, and and the vegetation, the layers of vegetation catching the rain, slowing the slowing the absorption, eight inches. That's pretty cool because if you think I can't about it, remember an eight inch rainfall. When was the last time we had an eight inch rainfall? Well, think about it like this. So if you what the pattern that at least we saw last year through much of Minnesota, at least in particular southern Minnesota, is that you would get this inch rainfall. And then it just never stopped raining, right? So then you'd get a half inch, and then you'd mm. get another inch, mm -hmm. and then you'd get another inch. So it's really sort of this cumulative thing where the rains were coming so close together, and mm. they were so much more than we're used to receiving, that if you think about it, then the prairie is well equipped to take that in as you get an inch, and then an additional inch, and an additional inch. I don't think they're talking about like a Noah's Ark moment where... <laughs> We're, we're getting like, yeah. it's a flood, people! There's going to be eight inches. But all this flooding 
these funding problems we've had mm -hmm. in recent years, Prairie is a potential solution, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Prairies and wetlands working together. And, and wetlands, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Justin, do you have a fun fact for us? I have a I have a fun fact question to ask you. If sure, sure. Like, how long does it take to make an inch of prairie soil? Okay, yeah. So I, I should have... I should have been uh, prepared with my fun facts because I already gave them uh, <laughs> very beginning. I didn't know we were going to save our fun facts for the end. Um, That's why I just asked you this one. Megan does this kind of thing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. the, bummer, the bummer is that I have no idea how long it would take to make an inch of prairie soil. Um, it would depend on so many things. Megan and Mike here for fact check number two. Take it away, Mike. Okay, so we looked into this, this question of how long it takes soil to form a little bit after the recording, and no no real uh, specific time period to, to give you here, but bottom line is it is complicated. Um, you know, there are several different things involved in forming soil, the parent material, topography, climate, the, the organisms, organisms that live in soil, and of course, time. And the bottom line is something like anywhere from 30 up to 1,000 years to form an inch of, of topsoil, depending on, on all those factors, potentially centuries. So Justin's right. It's complicated, but certainly it's a long time. And if you're interested in learning more about this topic, Justin provided us with two awesome papers, one of which just came out in 2020, and it's Soil Health Recovery After Grassland Reestablishment on Cropland, The Effects of Time and Topographic Position. And that's in the Soil Science Society of America journal. And then another one that you might want to check out is from 2008, and it's called Temporal Changes in C and N Stocks of Restored Prairie, Implications for C Sequestration Strategies, and that's in Ecological Applications. We'll make sure to put both of these up on our website, but stay tuned for more and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Megan and Mike, out. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here of what's going on underground, so we're going to have to have even more podcast where we talk about this one and I think the reason I put this in here is because in that field museum exhibit they answered this question and I can't remember what the answer was it was on a little plaque on the wall and I remember looking at it and reading it and thinking to myself wow that's a long time but I don't remember how long it was so dang it uh, yeah for sure and there's also issues of of the 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 biota, the soil biota, restoring the soil biota. So, um, you know, s s creating an inch of prairie soil is a lot more complicated than I think we often consider it to be, you know, um, yeah. figuring we can just kind of plant a couple grasses on a, an old field and, and figure that we've got things covered. I think it's more complicated than that and that there's a lot more we don't know about, and there's going to be um, uh, important questions that need to be answered about the, um, you know, the microbial communities that need to be restored and uh, plant diversity and all these things. So there's so much we don't know, which now we're going to cover some things that we do know. So I think it's time for our next section. Let's science to the literature. 
So this is the part of the podcast where we get to continue this amazing discussion about roots and bring you some of the latest and not so latest research about roots. Since, like Justin's been mentioning this whole time, a lot of the research was done um, by Weaver in his original book, which was, we'll just say, several years ago. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to start with my pick, and I already mentioned this earlier, but um, there's this prairie ecologist, Chris Helzer, did a blog post on a deep-rooted prairie myth. And so it kind of gets to this idea that we've thought for a long time that prairie grasses have such deep roots because they're doing, they're basically in times of drought or stress, then they would be able to pull water from deeper in the soil profile. But that's actually not true. Hmm. That's not what they're doing. We don't know what those deep roots are doing. So he's kind of talking about how most, and we mentioned this earlier, that most of the moisture and nutrient collection is really happening in that top foot of soil, those top 10 inches, especially for grasses. We know less about what's going on with Forbes. Justin mentioned that as well. We do know that they're going to pull from the upper profile of the soil, that they're not pulling water any deeper than 30 inches, even though some forbs, like you mentioned, have roots that are going feet deep. So we don't really understand basically why prairie roots have are so deep. Like We well, don't really know. Huh. I know, right? So it's a deep-rooted prairie myth. So there's a team out of Nebraska who's doing lots of research into this. And then I think the... The key thing that I found out um, from this article, there are two things that I thought were pretty interesting. One, they're actually surviving drought, not necessarily because they have deep roots, but because they're doing more with less. And I think that resonated with me because in our conservation jobs, I feel like sometimes that's, <laughs> we're like prairie roots. No doubt. <laughs> we do more with less. And so it says that they're just better able to manage that scarcity hmm. and live and survive on less water, which I thought was pretty fascinating because it's not really something I think about for our temperate climate. It's something I tend to think about with like cactus or things that are growing in Southwest United States, you know, desert plants. I don't really think of our temperate plants being able to do without as much moisture, but there you go. The other thing that I think is super cool is that it's still a mystery. Why are you so deep, prairie roots? We don't know. Like, so. <laughs> So it's exciting because I like when there's mysteries because it means there's even more for yeah, us to learn and discover. Yeah, yet another example of why prairie is a frontier. It is a frontier. Kind of like space or the deep ocean, you know, it's... You're going You're going back to the ocean analogy. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> I can't. So many similarities. So many similarities. I mean, no whales in the prairie, but, you know. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, badgers are, you know... There you go. Just as cool as whales. They're made... <laughs> prairie sharks, but yeah. Yeah, they're more like a bridge. <laughs> so my second pick for this one um, is the National Geographic Digging Deep Reveals the Intricate World of Roots. So this is an article that they put out. Um, it features some fantastic photography by Jim Richardson, who is a National Geographic photographer. I think he's also an independent photographer. I had the opportunity to hear him speak at a Soil and Water Association conference um, in Indiana. This is like, I don't know, 10 years ago now, something like that. And not only is he an amazing speaker, it's the type of presentation that is just awesome to sit there and listen to because it's all pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's a photographer. So, and he's an amazing photographer. So he's showing you, he's taking you on this tour of discovery 
through images, which I am a visual learner, so this is really helpful for me. And he did the same thing with this Digging Deep article. So he worked with Dr. Jerry Glover, who's at the Land Institute in Kansas, and they figured out a way that they could grow prairie roots in these 55, well, grow prairie plants in 55-gallon drums and then in PVC tubes. And then they broke the drums and the tubes apart and washed the roots and then took a series of photos detailing all of them. And it's it's crazy. Like this matting that we're talking about happening in that upper profile of soil, you can see that. And then you see that taproot that Justin's talking about with the forbs. And then you can see those deep roots that go down even further. It's, it's impressive. All right, Justin, tell us about some of your picks. Um, yeah, so uh, for my for my less let's science, I I want to plug this. I mean, it's 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 a book. It's it's free online. It's uh, hosted by uh, University of Nebraska's Digital Commons, and it is a it is a J.E. Weaver book called Prey Plants and Their Environment. And I downloaded um, it last night. Yeah, and it's you know like okay, it's pretty dry, but if you do if you do nothing else, just like scroll through and look at the pictures because that's what I did. This this is this is where all the cool all the cool pictures of the prairie plants are, and I think one of my favorite um, sort of drawings or uh, visualizations is um, he sort of creates this. Um, imaginary block of prairie soil underground that goes you know however many feet deep and he just kind of draws the the different um roots in 3d and kind of really gives you an interesting sense of space that's a cool image yeah it's yeah. it's very it's very um it's one of those things that gets you kind of into this new sort of idea of fascination that mm -hmm. Ever, I've never considered, you know, conceiving of a prairie in that way before, and I think the the images that he uh, created in that book are 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 good good ways to to get us a, a yeah. cool sense of wonder and um, and plus it's you know it's old fashioned good old science back yeah. when you were digging up prairie roots and uh, measuring them and it's uh, it's cool it's it's a good it's a good book. I like that you said there's a sense of wonder. One of the, Jim Richardson, the photographer that I was mentioning, one of his quotes that he's known for is he said, if you want to be a better photographer, stand in front of more interesting stuff, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just great. Mm -hmm. And then they asked him to explain what he meant by that. And of course, what he means is that it's your job as a photographer to transport, like to explain the subject and why it's interesting through photograph. And so it sounds like Weaver was really able to do that as well. So I, I love a good picture that helps paint what's going on for me. Okay, give us another one. So uh, the second thing I want to plug is um, Tallgrass Prairie Center's Roots Project. So, um, you know, we at the Tallgrass Prairie Center try to uh, carry on the work that, you know, Weaver does in sort of um, – giving people this um, sharing the wonder of what's underground in, in Tallgrass Prairie. So we have, um, as part of our roots project, we do grow, um, you know, native plants in these root pots that are, um, you know, nine, 10 feet deep. 
and then we um, we grow them in this interesting uh, turf mixture, turfus mixtures, like kind of what you uh, would see on a baseball field. And so the roots grow in that. And we crack open those tubes and um, with it, we pull them out with a crane and then we uh, crack them open and then um, we wash them out. And then we have these, um, we preserve them. And so we have these, um, these root specimens that um, get sent to um, primarily in the past, they've been sent to Iowa, um, you know, nature centers. Um, I think now we're, we're doing more um, sort of uh, widespread distribution of those. And then we also have root posters. So we have life-size uh, prairie plants, basically, that include the below grounds um, component. So these are banners that are, um, you know, uh, how tall are they? They're like six feet tall plus nine feet, so like 15 feet tall. Um, so, you know, you have to have like a big building <laughs> to display them at all. And we actually have a lot of folks who have done prairie restoration on their farms or um, and they're just excited about it and they want to show people like what they want to show people that this is going on above and below ground and I know you know some people who were buying those root banners hanging them in their barn and, and um, using it to, to share that so that's pretty cool um, so yeah there's a lot of a lot of excitement out there for prairie roots and uh, the prairie roots project is a, is a good thing to check out it's on our website um so yeah take it'll a look. be on our website as well we'll post all of these hey can i can i get one of those prairie root displays not the poster but the actual prairie roots no i was gonna ask um, for one i, I beat you okay <laughs> at, at our sakata we're gonna need two <laughs> our 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 office at sakata state park is where i want to put mine okay yeah well i'm gonna put mine out front at the headquarters but again, why do you think that I beat you're you. okay? Here's the deal Justin's <laughs> a super right. nice guy. I bet we can work out some off podcast deals where we can, you know, figure out how we can support their project. Justin, and... you and me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and we can get the permits. They're super cool. And they're the kind they of thing that's really cool. great yeah. for education events that we do, like Farm Fest or other things like that, where you can just visually see, oh my gosh, look at those things. Yep. They're really well done. Yeah. We're giving you lots of street cred here. You guys are doing awesome work. Yeah. Those are those definitely get the most attention of field days. If you bring out the prairie root and then you put the like a, and you just grab a handful of whatever's on the ground, like uh, you know, big blue stem and put it on top, people like people get it. Mm -hmm. Once they once they see it all together like that. Seeing is believing. It's pretty cool. There you go. Well, because this is our last podcast episode before we leave our Let's Science section, I have some other podcast recommendations that I'm going to make here. So there are lots of great people who are podcasting. There are lots of great science podcasts. And so Mike and I just wanted to direct you to a few of those. So the first one, because we're on this topic of prairie roots, which also is improving your soil health, is by the Natural Resources Conservation Service. It's called Stay Undercover. It's really fun. Um, they talk about all of your soil health related things and walk you through different conservation practices. It's a good listen. And then our, our friends over at Three Rivers Park District also do The Wandering Naturalist. 
which is a really fun podcast. Um, they cover lots of different topics. Like they did one on snow and they explain all the benefits of snow and what's why it's important and what's going on. They also cover things that are in the park or that you'll see. And so it's a really good one. Um, and then how about, our, uh, how about shortwave oh, podcast? Yeah, that's NPR. I might say that's one of my favorites. I shouldn't have favorites, but I kind of do because even though we designed this podcast, so it's a little bit longer, it's a deeper dive. What I like about shortwave is it's 10 minutes yeah. of the latest science research and they sort of rotate through the disciplines. And there's some really fun topics. Too. There's some really good yeah. ones. Yeah. Like they cover, they do cover natural resources and conservation topics, but it's in the rotation again with these other disciplines. So mm. they might, you'll learn about um, the latest Findings in medical science, for example, or health or climate change. They did one on um, this lady who studies the upper canopy of trees. That was one of my favorite ones. And so she also made a uh, natural resources Barbie so, and, which was uh, amazing to try to get kids to understand that they have different career options. I She was only on for 10 minutes, right? And I was like, haven't I, I want to meet this woman. Like, she's my new, I'm her biggest fan now. <laughs> haven't you bought one of these yet? No, I haven't bought a Natural okay. Resources Barbie Christmas Ideas, my Christmas Ideas. Okay. <laughs> Jess got me a... A seed harvesting milk jug belt, you can get me a Barbie. Because that's not weird at all. <laughs> but they are really cool. And actually, I think Mattel now makes them officially. So they were basically... it's Anyway, you should listen to Shortwave. It's a really good podcast. And then our state parks, many of our state parks also offer podcasts. They're on the individual state park pages. And they go through the history of that state park. Um, interesting things about how it came about, how it's changed through time. The one that I recently listened to was Whitewater State Park, and it's really well done. Their naturalist there walks you through different things. And, of course, naturalists are excellent at their jobs, and they're really yep. good at relaying information. And so they're easy to listen to mm -hmm. and really well done. Okay. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike? Take a hike. I'd love to take a hike with you and Justin. Wow. <laughs> Road trip, Iowa. <laughs> We're done. That's true. I would like to go to Iowa. I know. There's a lot of really cool there. things to see. I only drive through it on I-35, and I never look around. I'm, well, I look around, but I don't explore. Well, what you, you guys need have to down get there. out of the car and explore. Justin, give us some places to explore. Not necessarily in Iowa. Just what? Where should we hike? Yeah, so I, I did a lot of my dissertation work in northwestern Minnesota, so I have a very, very fond um, feelings for the prairies up there. So I would say um, take a hike at Blue Stem Scientific and Natural Area um, up by Fargo and Glendon more specifically. Um, and there's actually a – so if we're talking about prairie roots, there is this – I, I don't know of very many other places in the Tallgrass Prairie region that has a sort of functioning remnant prairie stream in it, but there is a prairie stream that flows very gently, and um, the water is crystal clear. It's very cool. Um, so that's just south of the headquarters there, and. Um, it's a it's a very cool um, plant community there, and yeah. Also, that's where the prairie chickens boom too. So, um, if you can book some blinds in in May, that's also a good a good one. All right. I like it, Mike. 
Mine is Schaefer Prairie. It's a, it's a TNC, uh, the Nature Conservancy property. The reason I picked it, it was it the really first prairie I visited in depth when I started here in Minnesota several years ago. Um, but well, the really reason I picked it is because it's it's midway basically between Hutchinson and New Ulm, um, and I think it was the, I think it was basically the closest remnant prairie to Hutchinson. Um, it feels kind of like it's out in the middle of nowhere, but part of part of my message with that with that pick is that if you're in southern Minnesota and or northwest, as, as Justin just talked about, you're never too far away from some remnant prairie. Um, you can, you know, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing here, but you're within half an hour, 45 minutes probably of being able to drive to, to someplace that is remnant prairie and that's public, publicly accessible. We're well, pretty lucky in Minnesota. Yes. Yeah. Through a lot of efforts of conservation individuals and landowners really working to protect those remnants. So we're, this is a totally different landscape than what I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that Schaefer Prairie, it's a, it's a cool it's it's not that small. It's kind of a medium-sized little prairie, um, and and I've really enjoyed. Whenever I need a prairie fix, I hopped in the car and ran a shaver when I was working up in Hutchinson. <laughs> okay, so mine is Pipestone National Monument. Because why? Because I'm a sucker for a Junior Ranger badge. <laughs> but in real life, it's also just a super <laughs> cool place to go. It is managed by the National Park Service. And so it's a historical monument, as you could gather from the name, Pipestone National Monument. And one of the things that I love about it is it has this trail that I think it's called the circle trail that goes through the property and you can see the pipestone quarries which are still active um, there are still tribal peoples who that is pipestone has much significance for them and so they mine that for different ceremonies and other things there's historical markers you can see the old stone face and then probably my favorite is the Winnowissa Falls that are out there. Hmm. They're just, they're really cool. It's all pipestone rock around there. It's just this beautiful red rock that's also, sometimes to me it looks a little bit purple too, so it has these different shades. And there's these big boulders there that have moss covering it. You can get some pretty neat shots where you feel like you're just transported to a different time. And I really like learning about different cultures and they, the visitor center does a great job of talking about, you know, the significance of that area and how tribes have used it through time. And I just think it's fascinating and interesting and a really special place. It feels holy to me when I go there. I don't know. I just feel kind of instantly at peace, whether it's the prairie or the history that I'm getting from it. I don't really know, but or because I'm just a sucker for national parks or national park service managed sites. I don't know. It could be a little bit of all the things. I need to get there, sounds like. You do need to get there. And if you have, if you're a super nerd like me and you have a passport, a national park service passport, you can get your park stamp in it. So. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Mark's just looking at me like, wow, you just took it to the next level. Hey, this is a real thing. And it is Megan Benage's life goal to get every single national park stamp in her book. I wish you the best in that. It is yeah. also my mom's life goal. And 
this is kind of a funny thing. The other day she was like, I'm never going to reach my goal because the park service keeps making more parks. <laughs> so <laughs> how am I supposed to reach my goal if they keep adding more after I've already been to that state? And so I thought it was a really funny thing to complain about. Of course, she was she was joking, obviously. She thinks it's a great thing that we're expanding and having more national parks so that we can preserve these treasures across the landscape. Because that's what they are. They're treasures. So don't forget, um, you can check these out on the DNR Recreation Compass to find more of your amazing public lands. Like Mike said, you're never too far. I like that, Mike. You're never too far from a prairie. That's right. That's right. That you can get your fix, visit, decompress, recharge. Mm -hmm. okay. Wow. I cannot believe that we just wrapped another season of the Prairie Pod. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I sure thank you for for letting me. I've give you a hard you. time sometimes. You you are of course adept at giving it back. So <laughs> I enjoyed it more with you than I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna like compare you to Jess because I don't feel like that's a fair. It is comparison. not a fair comparison. But I do. Not. I have enjoyed this tremendously. I really like this time with you. I'm so glad that Justin was able to join us today. I'm always impressed with the depth and breadth of your knowledge. I mean that in all sincerity. Like you're just a fascinating person. And I love being Thank able you. to work Thanks. with you. Oh, yeah, well, Justin, but I feel the same way after an hour of talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> we all feel so close to you. We're going to get bracelets. They're going to be made out of prayer roots twined together. You need to come down to Iowa and we can absolutely okay. We'll just fill out our out-of-state travel request one year in advance, and we will be there, buddy. <laughs> so, but, but before we, sorry, Justin. Before we close off, I just I want to make sure I acknowledge my my program that I work within for the Department of Natural Resources. It's the non-game wildlife program. I am a non-game wildlife specialist working within that program, and so it, it's due to them that I was able to to work with you on this. Prairie Pod. I think they, they support the Prairie Pod in other ways, I know. Sometimes. They do. They absolutely yeah. do. They help us making our podcast accessible, which right. is incredibly important. So they help us with transcription. So that way okay. anybody can learn and participate in the Prairie Pod. So just for our listeners, a very easy thing you can do to support prairie conservation. And, you know, prairie is a big emphasis because it's the most threatened terrestrial ecosystem in North America, right? If not the world. There you go. Um, it's a big emphasis for, the, for us in the non-game wildlife program. So if Support prairie conservation. Donating to us is a very simple step you can take. We are mostly dependent on donations. We don't get any revenue from general tax funds. So to support us, go to our website, the Non-Game Wildlife Program, go to our Facebook page. It's easy to donate. It is. There's a little handy button that you just click, and then you just donate. And you can also donate directly to the southern region um, you can mail a check to our headquarters here and you can just write in there that you want it to be donated to our program specifically because there's a non-game program as a whole and then we do different things across the state as well. Yep, yep. So. Oh, and I should mention taxes. It's, it's the, there's the, chicken, check the chickadee check off or the loon check off on, on income taxes. That makes it easy to donate some of your return. Yep. I don't think I've ever heard chickadee check off before, but I really well, like it. <laughs> yeah. Nice alliteration there. Yeah. Chickadee check off. Well, okay, it's hard to believe it, but we are at the end here. Don't get too sad because there's lots of Prairie Pod episodes to revisit and re-listen to. Uh, we just want to remind you to rate us and review us on iTunes. It is how we draw people in so that they can get some of this prairie knowledge. It brings in the great prairie peeps like you. So we just want to say from both of us, thank you for listening. Thank you. It's, it's great. We love doing this. We hope you're enjoying it. 
Feel free to send us ideas about episode topics. That's what we love the most. Season three basically built itself through your recommendations. So thank you for that. And I hope, and we both hope, and Justin hopes too, that you have many more days on the prairie yet to go. So don't forget to get out there and explore, especially in my favorite season. As the blue stem turns purple, the Indian grass gets golden, and the prairie drop seed starts to smell like buttered popcorn. It's my favorite. (laughs) As always, you can find... All of the Let's Science and Take Hike resources on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Megan. That was, that was good. That was fun. It was fun.